this week on the Backtable Podcast. I mean, I think knowledge is power and educating the patients for understanding the reasons why for everything, you know, whether it's, whether it's prostate cancer, whether it's BPH, whether it's anything, when, when you empower them to be their own best advocate and for them to understand the why of the discussion, in this case, you know, why is it important to screen? Why is it important to choose whatever the next step is? Why are we getting the MRI scan? Why are we doing the biomarker? and engage them in the process, I think they become their own best advocate and they become partners in the decision-making. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. If your healthcare practice involves detecting or treating prostate cancer, you already know that conventional screening methods are not as reliable or effective as needed. Detailed rectal exams and PSA screening both have limitations for delivering optimal results. That's why Exosome Diagnostics created the non-invasive ExoDX prostate test. It analyzes key molecular signatures in a urine sample and provides actionable information about a patient's risk of having high-grade prostate cancer. Designed for men 50 and over with a PSA in the gray zone of 2 to 10 nanograms per milliliter, the ExoDX prostate test returns a score showing the patient's risk of clinically significant prostate cancer. It has been used in more than 70,000 patients with extensive clinical validation. Clinical studies show that the test can help avoid 27% of unnecessary biopsies in patients with PSA levels in the gray zone. The test is covered by Medicare and private insurers and is now available with a convenient at-home collection kit. To learn more, please visit exosomedx.com. That's E-X-O-S-O-M-E-D-X.com. Now, back to the show. The Jose Oche Silva is your host this week. I am happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Ali Kasrayan. Dr. Kasrayan did his bachelor's degree at the University of Florida at Gainesville. He also did his medicine there and further his residency as well. Then he went to do a fellowship, a one-year fellowship in laparoscopic and endurology and robotics at the Institute of Mutualiste Montsouris in Paris, France. After this, he went on to join his father at Jacksonville, where he continues to serve the community. Dr. Kasrayan maintains a passion for prostate cancer awareness, as well as healthcare policy and advocacy. He is a distinguished member of the State of Florida Prostate Cancer Advisory Council, a position appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis, and specializes in second opinion consultation for prostate cancer and other urology concerns. Ali, welcome to Backtable. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on your wonderful, wonderful podcast that uh, I listen to all the time to learn about very, very interesting topics, uh, prostate cancer and beyond. Exactly. And mentioning prostate cancer, we're going to be talking about screening of prostate cancer and, and, and the new things that are out there. Ali, let me ask you about how you became a member of the Florida Prostate Cancer Advisory. I mean, I, Florida, I, I, I didn't know there was one. So, so what do you guys do there? I'll tell you, you know, like most things that we get involved in and get fortunate to be involved in is through interest and then mentors that open doors and opportunities. For me, prostate cancer has been a passion of mine. And, and some of that comes from, uh, one, my fellowship, which we'll talk about a bit more. But growing up, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with my dad, uh, who is probably one of my biggest mentors. I'm very fortunate to get to operate with them uh, through my career, my early career, and, and now my, I guess, middle career. And my mom's a world-renowned breast pathologist, and, and there are a lot of similarities between breast cancer and prostate cancer. Breast cancer is a cancer that very, very intimately affects women, and prostate cancer is a cancer that men often are afraid to talk about, and that desire to avoid screening, avoid therapies and things of that nature, I think is a very, very important thing for us to talk about as clinicians and is an important thing for us to be mindful as we talk about the topic we're discussing today. And 
in, in looking at my mentors from my residency, one of them, Tom Stringer at the University of Florida, I've been very fortunate to have as a mentor, got me involved in advocacy very early in my career, both through the AUA, the Florida Urologic Society, and then an opportunity to be involved uh, in the Prostate Cancer Advisory Council. And early on, I, actually, when Johannes Fiewig was a chair at, at the University of Florida, he invited both my mom and myself to a meeting, and I kept getting invited. And then Tom Stringer, when he became the executive director, gave me an opportunity to be on that. Really, with my work, when I had a weekly radio show and did medical correspondence, a big part of that was to raise awareness for prostate cancer. And so a, a big part is to help do that in the state of Florida. So it's mainly to create awareness. That, that's the purpose of the uh, Advocacy Council. Raise awareness and bring together practitioners from urologists, medical oncologists, patient advocates, and for us to learn about the needs of the state for prostate cancer and where funding is needed and where education is needed and how to better meet the state's needs for a prostate cancer. Great. I moved to Orlando about five years ago and I, and I wasn't aware. I'm glad that Florida is doing it. So let's talk about prostate cancer screening. Uh, what age did you start? Are you following the guidelines? Because the, the guidelines, I mean, you, you were already practicing when the guidelines came in and I was fascinated. What was the trend? I mean, one day it's okay to screen up a guy 44 years old and the next day, then you have, you have to wait 11 years, 55 years old. So how's your practice? I mean, if we look, the guidelines are so confusing. And if you look, you know, for you and I as urologists, we keep up with this stuff. And those people that are kind of dealing with prostate cancer on a daily basis, we keep up with this quite a bit. And, and, and even then it's very controversial. And I think prostate cancer is one of the most controversial cancers that urologists, urological oncologists, medical oncologists, and practitioners in general deal with. So you can imagine for the primary care doctors, this has to be really, really difficult to deal with. And for men in general, this has to be very confusing. And we constantly change what the information we put out there. Every organization seems to have a different guideline. What I seem to like and, and what I think makes a lot of sense, it comes from a study I read some years ago that came out of Malmo, Sweden, that some colleagues of mine from Memorial Sloan Kettering and other institutions seem to be involved in, and, and it resonates with me and it makes a lot of sense. In this study, they looked at a large number of men, over 25,000 men that they followed for their lifetime. And this was a study looking at the natural history of disease. And they went back and found these men's blood and freezers, and they looked at the PSA. And they found that first PSA in your mid to early 40s was the most predictive of your future risk of prostate cancer that's going to be clinically significant in your lifespan, your quality of life. So that's impactful. And this was for men uh, with average risk of prostate cancer. They found that men who had a PSA above 1.5 represented about 44% of men who had clinically significant prostate cancer later on in their life. So that's very profound. They found that men who had a PSA less than one may not potentially have clinically significant prostate cancer any time in their life. And they actually had a follow-up study for men that had PSAs less than one at 60 they actually may never have a clinically significant prostate cancer. So if you look at Memorial Sloan Kettering's website to talk about their screening protocols, they follow a, a very regimented algorithm based on this pathway, which makes a lot of sense. So for me, I think you know having a PSA, if you're a normal risk person with no family history of prostate cancer, you're not of African ancestry or you're not African-American, having a PSA around 45 makes a lot of sense. If you have a family history, if you're African-American, having a PSA somewhere closer to 40 makes a lot of sense because then you can actually come up with a game plan as to how often to get a PSA, potentially getting a PSA sooner. Uh, if your PSA is actually much higher at those ages, talking to a urologist sooner, talking about getting a smarter screening regimen. We'll talk about things like biomarkers, the multiparametric MRI. We have a lot of tools that are actually designed to avoid unnecessary biopsies, but also make sure we're not missing a reason to do a biopsy and miss a cancer that's clinically significant. And nowadays, we have so many other tools that are emerging and are going to continue to emerge, like focal therapy and things of that nature that are looking to 
manage disease with less side effects and less morbidity. And I think how we manage prostate cancer is going to be much different. Active surveillance, I think, has changed the conversation. There are a lot of controversial discussions about whether or not Gleason 6 prostate cancer is even, you know, that, that you've had a whole other discussion about it. You and I could spend hours having that discussion. Exactly, exactly. But it's a controversial challenge. So I think one thing we as urologists can do is try to make it a little bit more simplified so, so our primary care doctors and the men going to those primary care doctors could have a better, more simplified discussion so we don't keep men who need to be screened away from screening. Exactly, because I think when the guidelines came out, uh, what I'm seeing is that most of the primary care in the areas are just waiting for the patient to be 55. And then suddenly that 55 patient asymptomatic has a PSA in seven. What do you do then? The challenge with that recommendation is, you know, the, the AUA, when they created that task force, they put a pretty high standard for that task force to bear where you had to have randomized, you know, uh, level A evidence to make recommendation based on. And that's a very, very difficult level of data to find uh, where you have level one randomized clinical control trials. Those don't always exist. There are trials that are pretty good trials that don't necessarily have to be randomized controlled trials to let us know that screening and early screening can potentially save lives. Yeah, I, I personally in the office, I'm not going to do a PSA on somebody asymptomatic uh, less than 40, but definitely more than 40. I see a lot of Hispanics. There's data that Hispanics have more chances of higher grade cancer. So I, I start doing the PSA at 40. Uh, it becomes a challenge. Like you said, patients that had a, a 0 0.8, 0 0.6, I mean, are you going to do it yearly? Are you going to do it every two years? That's when it's different. I mean, I, I think sometimes if you do every two years, that patient might forget. So I'm, at least in my practice, I do it yearly or I recommend do it yearly, but it's always changing. <laughs> and and I, think, I think that's the challenge with this aspect. I, I think it makes it easy if, if you make the conversation easy. And if you simplify it for a patient, often, you know, a lot of our patients that we see as urologists, often when they come in with an elevated PSA, they don't even know why they're there. So this idea of having a personalized discussion with your primary care doctor about whether or not to get a PSA, that's a very difficult thing to potentially put all of that on a primary care doctor that has maybe 10 to 15 minutes to talk to their patient about everything under the sun. So I think we have to be a little bit realistic about the implications of, of a personalized discussion about screening with a population that often may have other things on their mind when they're going to their primary care doctor. and They may not have all the information about prostate cancer screening. And, and for urologists to lead that discussion, often when we see the patient, they've already had a PSA that's elevated. We often do not see the patient's for prostate cancer screening when they have a low PSA, unless we're seeing for other reasons and we have the opportunity to do that. And, and that's not usually the prostate cancer screening patient. Exactly. What are the options for screening right now? Rectal exam, PSA, is there anything else you're using as a screening? Again, the, the challenging discussion from that standpoint is when we see patients or where I see someone who, who, you know, most of my practice is elevated PSAs, prostate cancer management and things of that nature. By the time I see a patient, often they're coming in for a discussion of whether or not to get a biopsy, they're elevated, they have an elevated PSA, what do we do with that? It's not necessarily this person is interested in, in whether or not to get a PSA, what should we do? If I have someone that's calling me to have that discussion, it's usually a friend of mine or their dad has a question or something like that. It's off-the-cuff discussion or we're having it as a non-practice, non-clinic appointment type of discussion or something like this, frankly. Or a primary care doctor is actually calling me for advice or I'm giving a lecture. Those are really the most of the time where, where those discussions come into play, sadly. But there are ways that we can potentially do better. You know, you have the PSA, you have percent free PSA, which gives you some information. Nowadays, we have biomarkers. You have things like the exosome DX, which is a great test. It's a urine-based test where if someone has a, a PSA where you wonder if that PSA warrants a biopsy or if they have a PSA that's up and down, can you potentially get some more information of whether or not their PSA is associated with a higher risk or an intermediate or higher risk prostate? So what is the risk of 
a Gleason 7 or higher prostate cancer. So basically, they do a urine-based test, and this test can give them information or give the clinician information about that risk. Very easy to do. They basically urinate, and that, that urine test can give us that information. And does it have anything to do with the PSA? I mean, for example, there are some biomarkers or some screening tests that the PSA needs to be above four to be more sensitive or less than 10, or is just a pure PCR test? How does it work? So basically, this looks at vesicles. It's very interesting. When we were in medical school, they thought vesicles were just a, some useless component of the cell that may have some mitochondria in there, that we didn't know quite what it did. Some very, very uh, smart gentlemen was looking at this for completely unrelated reasons and actually found there were components of RNA, messenger RNA in there. And with the RNA, it's basically a blueprint of DNA. So you can get samples that give information about your genetic information from that aspect. So, so they take information from that that can be used to give us predictive information. And it's a very, very nice, very reproducible bit of information that you can get very, very easily. Again, it's urine that we can get And based on this, you can get a spectrum of information about what the risk of having a prostate cancer that's Gleason 7 or higher that's been very well validated. And use it as a spectrum of information. Do you get it a low? Can you complement it with an MRI scan? So if, if you have a low score, you know, a, a cutoff point has been in the past at 15.6. So if that score is lower, you have a less than 10% risk of having a Gleason seven or higher prostate cancer. So for example, if someone either does not want to do a biopsy and there's a dilemma between the urologist and the gentleman, or if someone has a PSA that keeps bouncing up and down, or if it's someone who's had previous biopsies and they've been negative, uh, you can do an MRI scan plus a test like this. You can get a test like this to decide whether or not to do an MRI scan. There are people with pacemakers that you sometimes can't do an MRI scan. So there's so many different pathways that one needs more information on. And so this test allows you a very simple way to do it. And I'll give you some perfect examples. And we're actually presenting an abstract at the AUA with this. When, when COVID pandemic hit, a lot of people were scared to come into clinic. And you had situations in terms of what to do, what, you know, people weren't going to get lab tests. We worked uh, with a few other centers to create a pilot of being able to send people this test into their homes where they could do these urine tests and send them into the clinic so you can actually facilitate smarter screening with a biomarker that people could do at home. It really, really helped us make smarter decisions about what to do based on that. And you were sending the patients uh, based on if the PSA was above four, if the PSA was increasing, what were your criteria to use this product? So for me, honestly, uh, the, the way I use this, for me, PSA in terms of a number uh, is variable. So, so you can do it between PSAs 2 to 10. Some other biomarkers have a 4 to 10 criteria. Right now, there's a thing called an ISO-PSA, which is a very intriguing PSA test. It gives you information. It gives you the PSA. It gives you the percent free PSA. It's a blood test. Again, if the score is above 6 or so, uh, your risk of prostate cancer is higher. So again, it's a test that gives you a cutoff point that right now you can use for PSAs four or higher in that four to 10 range. So that's a little bit different from that standpoint. For me, I look at your total history. So if a patient comes to me with an elevated PSA, if they haven't had a recent PSA, I repeat it. If they've had very stable PSA and all of a sudden it's gone up, I repeat it. I don't really ever act on one PSA. I look at PSA velocity. So if a PSA over the past year or so has changed by a factor of 0.75, I pay mind to it. There are some studies that show that multiple PSA changes of 0.4 matter. So that's something that we look at. And then I add potentially these biomarkers as information if it makes a difference. So for example, if someone has an abnormal rectal exam, if their PSA is drastically changing and we're going to do a biopsy anyway, You take this information in stride. If doing a biomarker is really not going to change our decision, then getting just another test for the sake of getting other tests may not make that much of a difference. Sometimes you have patients who absolutely and adamantly refuse to do a biopsy and getting a biomarker, and when they see that percentage risk is very high, 
it's amazing how it opens their eyes to that possibility. And it's a very powerful thing for them to see that they may have a risk of prostate cancer. And so it allows us to have a different conversation when they see that. So it can be helpful. You mentioned that during the pandemic, you were doing telehealth and sending the kid homes. Are you still doing it? I mean, have you integrated telehealth to your practice? Yeah, we still do telehealth in our practice. Uh, what's interesting is right now, the biggest impediment for telehealth often is whether it's covered by insurances. So far, most people cover it. Medicare covers it. Some commercial payers are beginning to back off a little bit from that standpoint. So we have to be mindful, not necessarily in terms of our component of it, but you know, if they penalize our patients and things of that nature. So we have to be mindful. What's interesting is also figuring out which conversations to have with telehealth. You know, I, I personally think having a you just got prostate cancer on, on a telehealth discussion. Sometimes it's quite difficult. It becomes more of a lecture than a conversation, and I think that's a bit difficult to have. I think it's very good for certain things. Uh, if someone's had you know radiation therapy or a prostatectomy and you want to follow up and tell them their PSA is doing great, it's probably great for them to do that as opposed to come drive here and wait in a waiting room and sit in a room and then have a quick conversation. It's a very efficient use of their time. Sometimes reviewing things very quickly with people is very nice. If someone has a quick question and you want to you essentially triage to see if they should come in or not, sometimes it's very, very efficient as well. So we incorporate that into our practice, both between us and our PAs as well. How about you? So the same. I mainly do testosterone follow-up just to discuss labs. Also the PSA, the same situation. That patient that had radiation, just say hi with the PSA. And those patients that are just follow-ups, maybe just to the stone follow-up, ultrasound, just to say hi. I'm trying to, all those patients that are just mainly follow-ups, try to do telehealth if the insurance covers it. And essentially, it's just to free my space for the office and to get more patients in, new patients. So that's what I've been trying to do. And, and hopefully, the insurance continues to pay for it. Honestly, like I, I think it would be very, very short-sighted if insurances and Medicare take away the coverage of it, because I think it is very valuable for patients, and also is very valuable for patients in terms of those for whom access is an issue. People in rural areas, for you know, one subspecialty that you know you and I don't do on a daily basis. But imagine, you know, pediatric urology. You know, pediatric urologists are very specialized and regionalized. And they cover patients in a lot of different areas. So parents have to take time off of work. They have to take all their kids out of school. They have to drive long distances to take their children over there. Some of their follow-ups could be managed with that aspect. People who have families who are in nursing homes and, and it's difficult for them from a mobility standpoint. So hopefully, you know, the powers that be continue to kind of allow and see the vision for, for the benefits of telehealth and let us do that. Exactly. And Ali, going back to the biomarkers and your, your process, how do you integrate MRI? Are you doing MRI on everybody that has elevated PSA or what are you doing first? So for me, I'm a big believer of MRI and we've been a, a, a early adoptive MRI. We started doing our first MRIs around 2013. I kind of joke around with my, my wife and my first radiologist that we started doing MRIs with. It marks the anniversary of when my wife and I met each other. The first trip my wife and I took together was to London as my radiologist and I took a trip to London to spend a week with Mark Emberton and Hasha Meds Group and, and, and their radiology team to get our protocols down for MRI scans. The Jacksonville Jaguars were playing in London that week and it was my way of negotiating with my radiologist to come and see what multiparametric MRI was all about. I, for years, try to get people to do multiparametric MRI scan, but the hospitals did not see the vision of tying up an MRI scanner for that amount of time. But a friend of mine did, and fortunately, he came and saw the vision of it. And in 2012, 2013, we got our protocols down, and uh, very fortunate that, that Mark Emerton and Hash and Claire Allen and Carolyn Moore were very kind to us to help us learn their protocols and be able to start it here. And initially, you know, getting it paid for was very difficult. We had very low cash pay amounts so our patients could afford to do it. 
I'm very grateful for Peter Pinto at the NIH for working very hard and the team at Phillips for being very, very kind to offer us a lease program. I'm in a two-man urology group with my dad to be able to have one of the first leases in the country to have a year and a half here back in 2013. And we started doing uh, fusion biopsies back then. And now 1,300 fusion biopsies later, it's been a wonderful experience to be able to bring that to the region. And it's been a really wonderful experience to see how that shape. Interestingly, we, you know, we still haven't come up with a code or anything like that to be able to get it paid for for our patients, which is really interesting with all the data that's out to support doing targeted biopsies and that aspect. But to answer your question, in that aspect, we try to get MRI scans on everyone that we're going to do a biopsy for the power of both the negative MRI scan, but also the positive MRI scan. Not only does it set us up for the possibility of having a negative MRI scan to help us make a decision in terms of biopsy or no biopsy and a standard biopsy versus a targeted biopsy, but in terms of future follow-up or people on active surveillance, it may potentially help guide us in terms of delaying the time in between biopsies. We can use this information in combination with biomarkers, things like the exosome DX like we spoke about, the 4K score. And we've done, you know, multi-center trials with different groups and looking at not only the validity or value of this process, but also, you know, the, the ultimate question that I don't think anyone has an answer to, which one do you do first? Do you do the biomarker <laughs> first? Do you do the MRI scan first? And I don't think anyone has an answer. I think it really depends on the patient and the scenario. Yeah. So that patient with a Gleason 7, DRE is normal, MRI normal, maybe then that will definitely benefit from the exosome DX to see if he needs the, the, the biopsy or not. I mean, And I think that's the power of, of the, the biomarkers, although right now you really can't order biomarkers in people that have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, which is amazing because you and I, are, the first thought in our brain is that's a really powerful use of a biomarker that supposedly can tell us the risk of a, a Gleason 7 versus a Gleason 6 cancer because if someone is on active surveillance, have as a negative MRI scan, and we can do an exosome DX, we can do a 4K score, we can do a biomarker designed to pick up the risk of a Gleason 7 cancer that we should be able to figure out a way or be able to do studies to figure out of a way to use that test to help us delay future biopsies. And, and, and so that's a question that I know the companies bring up quite often, but it'd be wonderful to see a test uh, or the studies to, to help us prove that to be able to use those to delay the biopsy or the frequency of the biopsies in between for active surveillance. But I don't think right now you can use any of the biomarkers in the prostate cancer setting, unfortunately. Yeah, because also a patient that has a PSA of, of 12, 13, maybe a 120-gram prostate, the insurance denied the MRI, you do biopsy, only a Gleason, 3 plus, a Gleason 6 in two cores, but you know that there might be something else. <laughs> and the, the, the exosome DX might be, hey, there is something else. So let's look for it. Absolutely. I agree with you. Right now, how do you decide, I mean, when to do a biopsy? So for me, the, the, the way to do a biopsy or, or, or the decision to make the biopsy, you know, obviously talking to the patient is, I mean, it sounds generic to say it is a very important part of that discussion. And the tools we're, we're using, the PSA, the biomarkers, the MRI scan, all of these things are wonderful tools and growing tools to help us make a personalized decision together to come up with a, a, a path to avoid missing a prostate cancer that could potentially impact someone's life and potentially find it at a time that if we need a treat, come up with the least invasive therapy that has the, the least impact and not only the quality of life, which is the most important, but also do it in a way that we make sure that we, we find it at a time that we can be most impactful of saving their life while doing so. And, and so I think the way to do that is obviously the earlier we find the cancer, the better. But right now, the big conversation is we really don't want to find low-volume Gleason 6 cancer, as, as weird as that sounds. The MRI scan was not designed to find one core of Gleason 6 cancer because I think most people agree that is not a fatal disease. And so the idea is how do we, how do we use these tools to actually find 
the disease that matter. The Europeans say if the MRI is negative, do we really need to do a biopsy? The U.S. side has not gotten to that point yet. You know, in the active surveillance protocols, we still talk about doing biopsies on a regimented manner. I remember when I was shadowing in, in European clinics in, in, in London, the MRI scan really drove what to do next. And, and I think an important part of that discussion is our confidence in our, our radiologists and ourselves in reading the MRI scans to be confident we're not missing anything. And I don't think nationally we're quite there yet, and hopefully we will continue to get there. And I think it's important for urologists to learn how to read the MRI scans well for us to get there. What I use to make my decisions about doing a biopsy is the PSA, the trajectory of PSA change, and the MRI scan. And then as a complement, if I need to, uh, if there's question about what that PSA is doing, if the MRI scan isn't really a deciding factor, I do use the biomarkers to help make that decision as well. But a lot of times, you know, that biomarker is often a helpful tool in the decisions with the patient because I do see a lot of patients that actually come see me because... They've had a lot of people talk to them about, you need a biopsy, you need a biopsy, and they themselves do not want to get a biopsy. And these tools help them see whether they need a biopsy, or we can actually safely rule out that they don't need a biopsy. And so that's how I use these tools to help me make sure I don't miss anything, but also ensure that if, if we're not going to do a biopsy, it's safe to do that. Exactly. I mean, at least for me, my practice uh, uh, for the past three years, it was during the pandemic. Because for some reason I couldn't do the biopsies in the in the office, I started doing biopsies in the in the OR under sedation, and I started doing the MRI more often, more often. Before I was doing the MRI after a negative biopsy, and then doing the MRI and see if I missed something. Now I mean I have incorporated, and unfortunately I'm seeing more positive cancer, but I'm doing less biopsies than before. Definitely, so it's good. I mean now the ones that I'm doing biopsy are unfortunately most likely going to have a cancer, but like before. Most of them didn't, so it's bad news for the patient that I do decide to do a biopsy. But I definitely need to start incorporating biomarkers. There's still some patients that, that will definitely benefit from a biomarker, and I'm not using it, so that's something that I'm going to have to integrate in my practice. One quick point to that, because you, you feel bad whenever you diagnose those kind of cancers. My dad always says, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about the cancers that actually need to be found because you're actually, those are the patients whose lives you're saving. And, and so it, for me, it, it, it takes that perspective and shifts it a little bit from that standpoint because you do feel bad when you do find cancer and, and, and it's not the most exciting thing to tell people, but it is something where eventually it would have been found. And this is coming from, from my father, where when he was in residency, the way they found prostate cancer was, you know, people showed up with spine fractures. And he's not, you know, an, an, an ancient father-time urologist. This is within lifetime of urologists that are around today. So that's an interesting thing for us to keep in perspective, that fortunately we're in a time where that's not our common place for how we manage and find prostate cancer. Exactly. I still see it. I have seen it a few times in Apopka, in where I have the office, but yeah, it's not the, the norm. So Ali, comparing your experience in the fellowship versus the way we were doing things at that time in residency, was it an eye-opener going there to Paris and, and, and seeing a little bit less aggressive? Well, I mean, it's interesting. When I was in, in, in Paris, I thought finishing that year over there, I'd figured out the path to the correct way of living uh, living life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they had a, a beautiful balance of everything, and uh, and it was amazing. We were very busy. You know, you kind of showed up at 8 o'clock. You did two prostates in the morning. You had a, a long, wonderful lunch with the whole team, and then you did two prostates in the afternoon, and you went home, and, and uh, you walked home through beautiful Paris, and you did fun social things at night, and eventually, periodically, one of the attendings would call up with an amazing idea, and you'd run back and do fun things in the lab and do great research. And when I came back home, I thought I had the balance of work and life figured out. My dad was like, okay, we'll see how that works out for you. And we don't quite do the things <laughs> the same way here in the United States. So that didn't last too long. But, you know, it was a great fellowship. I'm still friends with a couple of my attendings over there, and we talk all the time. Eric Beret and Francois Rosé are great. Uh, Rafael Sanchez and I did our fellowship together, and, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for my year over there, and it changed the trajectory of my career. And again, the lessons I learned over there allowed me to think 
critically about prostate cancer in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. It also opened my eyes to healthcare from the way we do things here in the United States to give a little bit of a broad perspective of the benefits of the way we manage healthcare here with the way they do things over there. And you kind of take a perspective of the benefits of both. And so you can take that perspective and learn from it, from that aspect. And I, you know, I talk with my colleagues over there at meetings and then, you know, nowadays with technology and email and text and things like that, you can get perspectives all the time. And it allows us to learn from each other quite a bit. But I kind of always say, you know, new technologies for the things that we do often start over there and we make them available for mass consumption here in the United States. And things like HIFU and and some of the, the focal therapy technologies seems to be very true for things in the United States as they seem to run a lot faster and quicker over there. And it takes a little bit longer for focal therapy to have gain traction here in the United States, which has been a little bit frustrating. And were they doing focal therapy for high-risk cancer? I mean, intermediate risk or high risk? Well, I mean, if you look at the data, you know, for example, uh, one of the, the studies that was published in the European Urology by Hash Ahmed and Mark Emberton's group that showed, you know, 88% retreatment-free and, and recurrence-free cure at five years for focal therapy. 84% of those patients were intermediate and high risk. Uh, so it's very, very impressive. And they had a 98 to 100% prostate cancer-specific, metastasis-free, and overall survival. So that's very impressive data from that standpoint, especially since most people talk about focal therapy for nowadays, you know, 3 plus 4 equals 7 prostate cancer and the possibility of consideration for 3 plus 3 equals 6 disease for people who are really uncomfortable with the idea of continuing with active surveillance, although that, you know, a lot of people talk about if they meet the criteria for active surveillance, do we really need to treat it at all? You know, but everyone has those patients who meet criteria for active surveillance but aren't comfortable watching. That's the idea. I, th I think focal therapy, rightfully so, should grow in the United States. It's a great way to think about, it's kind of like expanding active surveillance. It doesn't mean that everyone who undergoes focal therapy won't necessarily need more therapy. But could it potentially avoid the possible side effects of more radical or whole gland therapies that may come in the future? But you could potentially delay it for some time when you properly select the right patient for the right therapy. And that's the key, I think, for focal therapy, uh, appropriately diagnosing the cancer, appropriately staging and grading the cancer that may be a candidate for focal therapy, and finding the right technology to meet the cancer based on the location. So yeah, and I and I think I mean in other organs, we we try to do pairing most of the organs. So so hopefully at some point we'll, we'll get to that to the prostate being the, the the standard, trying to preserve most of it. So you, you mentioned the active surveillance, and you mentioned also that, that most of these biomarkers are not indicated after the diagnosis. But are you using in your practice biomarkers? To be honest with you, the the challenge with it is is getting it paid for. You know, the, the, the technical aspect of doing it is a, a human being's blood and their PSA level and their, you know, the ability to run these tests doesn't change if they have Gleason 6 cancer or not. The challenge becomes if they have the diagnosis, either it won't be run because they say they have a prostate cancer, it won't be run. And really the rate limiting factor becomes that the insurance won't pay for it. So that unfortunately becomes a challenge. And most patients... We're not going to necessarily kind of shell out of the pocket, rightfully so, because these are expensive tests. But like you and I are talking about, the value in doing this is it's, it's a cool idea and it's a, there's some merit to it. And to the company's defense, I don't think they're in disagreement with it. It's just you have to do the studies to show there's validity to it. And, and, and so that, that's the next step, I think. And I think right now for the active surveillance arm, I think there, there's a lot of value for that to be done, at least in my opinion. No, no, you're exactly right. I mean, and some of these patients, if you can save not doing a biopsy or the opposite, I mean, going to a procedure because, hey, we're watching you, but you have risk of being aggressive. You don't have to put that patient waiting one year, two years to see when it's going to get worse because it, it might be. I mean, it's interesting. Are you using genomics and things of that nature in, in your practice, things like Prolaris, Decipher, Oncotype, and things after diagnosis? I use Decipher. 
Yeah, and these are great tests. They give us information about, you know, the the potential biological activity. I kind of tell them, it tells you, you know, is a cat in a bag going to grow up to be a kitten or a ferocious tiger? So it kind of gives us that idea of, of the potential of these cancers later. And I think where the strongest value for this is, you know, low volume three plus four, high volume six, you know, is this something you watch or is this something that you treat? And then could you potentially use some of these other tests later on to kind of decide whether or not to continue watching or not? And I think that's this idea of, you know, what to do in the future. These are some really, really great ideas in terms of what to study, kind of from not to commend you even more for such a great title for your podcast for the back table. It's kind of from from back table to bedside. So I think that's some a great idea of how to use research that can actually really make impactful change in clinical practice. Exactly. And just like you mentioned, I mean, yeah, I use the decipher for a patient, 5%, glisom 3 plus 4. I mean, are you going to treat fully this guy or are you going to do an active surveillance or do something less? So that's where I've been using it. So Ali, anything else you want to add in terms of patient advocacy or, or what makes the patient more comfortable? I think one of the things to kind of be mindful is, is, is knowledge. I mean, I think knowledge is power. And educating the patients for understanding the reasons why for everything, you know, whether it's whether it's prostate cancer, whether it's BPH, whether it's anything, when when you empower them to be their own best advocate and for them to understand the why of the discussion. In this case, you know, why is it important to screen? Why is it important to choose whatever the next step is? Why are we getting the MRI scan? Why are we doing the biomarker and engage them in the process? I think they become their own best advocate and they become partners in the decision making. You know, I'm not and I never will be the kind of doctor that tells a patient what to do, especially in the realm of prostate cancer treatments, for example. Every treatment has its own very specific risks and benefits and and every patient needs to be mindful of, of that and they have personal decisions or personal opinions of what that is. And I kind of tell them this, you know, there are four types of prostate cancer, in my opinion. There are rockets, rabbits, turtles, and snails. We are screening, and the whole reason to screen is to avoid rockets. Those are the cancers that are metastatic and or get metastatic. And then, you know, the rabbits are the prostate cancers that have legs. Those are the Gleason 7s, 8s, 9s, and 10s. And, and really, we are screening to catch those at a time that we can catch them while they're confined to the prostate so that we can treat them at a time where our treatments are curative and, and our cures approach close to you know 95% to 100% cure when they're confined to the prostate. The controversies for prostate cancer arise with the turtles and the snails, those low volume, low risk prostate cancers that really are not fatal. And that's where the controversies for prostate cancer from screening to treatment to the you know thing that comes up all the time, over-treatment, over-diagnosis comes up. So I think where we, we can continue to strive to do better is how to be smarter in screening, smarter in advanced diagnostics, and continue to push the envelope on, on less invasive and treatment options that strives to, you know, uh, with focal therapy, Mark Emerton always says something uh, a lot more elegantly than I will, the more prostate you preserve, the more function you preserve. If we look at that with everything that we do in terms of trying to optimize cure while also optimizing quality of life outcomes, I think we will continue to win. And I think active surveillance is an important part of that. With screening, one of the things that we have to be mindful of is recently uh, the American College of Surgeons put out some, some numbers where there was a decrease in certain cancers over time. And there were some celebrations and, and, and wonderful news for certain cancers, like cervical cancer was one. They found that there was a 3% increase in prostate cancer incidence each year from 2014 to 2019, and that's about 99,000 new cases. And this is the first time in 20 years that we've seen an increase in the incidence of prostate cancer. And that translates, you know, in 2023, we're going to see 28,300 new cases of prostate cancer with 34,700 deaths. These numbers are continuing to elevate where, you know, several years ago, people remember numbers were on 188,000. So those numbers were lower. And, you know, this is attributable very much in large part to those changes in screening recommendation. And, and they actually come out and say that. Other factors could be a part of that. However, we have to be mindful of that. And then we've seen papers written in terms of the stage migration, increase in more metastatic disease, 
And if we're not mindful of that uh, and we, we don't be smart about how we discuss appropriate screening, we don't have those conversations and, and be mindful of the recommendations we make to our primary care colleagues, we, we don't educate the men in our community, the African-American population with family history, engage men in terms of how we do biopsies that are less painful with less side effect and have men just go in and get screenings. PSA tests, make them not afraid of the rectal exam potentially. We're going to have men that are going to show up with more advanced disease. You know, that's going to be a big shame because we're at a time where we're looking at better technologies, uh, imaging that lets us do better, biopsies that can let us be more targeted. And we're pushing the envelope of more and more novel technologies that lets us do more focal therapies that preserve more prostate and preserve more function, much like at a time when Bernie Fisher pushed the envelope of the segmental mastectomy, changing the, the mindset of doing the Halstead radical mastectomy. And people thought he was, he was being a, a complete irresponsible person, but he let science move things forward and he changed how breast cancer was treated. I think, you know, over the past five to 10 years, we're pushing that envelope for prostate cancer. And if we do it responsibly and follow the data, I think we can change how prostate cancer is managed. We just have to educate our colleagues and our primary care doctors and our, the men in our communities that way and make sure that we reverse this tide because prostate cancer, unfortunately, can kill. And it's a shame because it should. Do you think it's going to be the time at some point that we go to treat the prostate cancer without actually doing biopsy? I mean, just based on MRI? Because for some reason, I mean, I, I'm seeing more patients that are afraid of just the biopsy. I mean, they're not afraid of the cancer of getting a radical prostatectomy. They just don't want the biopsy. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, the, the, there are some papers coming out of people going to prostatectomy straight from MRI scan. I know I wouldn't do that. I'd be a little bit uh, <laughs> terrified of uh, having an MRI scan and coming out with a negative, uh, negative prostatectomy. I don't know how happy any a anyone would be with that result, and I don't know how that conversation goes in the post-prostatectomy discussion. But I think where that will mature to, I think it'll take some time. But I think as the MRI scans continue to standardize, I think as our radiologists. And importantly, as urologists become as comfortable in reading at multiparametric MRI of the prostate as we are as looking at a CT scan, looking at a renal mass, or as, as looking at kidney stones, I don't think, you know, necessarily when, when we get called in the emergency room for a kidney stone, we're not waking up a radiologist at two in the morning and we can't make a decision on what to do with the stone to wake up a radiologist. I don't think, unless it's really, really challenging. We can't look at a CT scan, uh, looking at a kidney mass and, and making some idea of what this is going to be on a CT scan or even an MRI scan for kidney masses. However, for the multiparametric MRI scan, you know, I know for me, I, I've, I've been looking at them for in the next year or two, it'll be a decade. And so I feel comfortable looking at them, but I still talk to my radiologist every time I look at one and we confer and discuss it and make sure that we're both on the same page from that standpoint. And I think that's something that I think is worthwhile for my patient. But I only have the same two people that have been reading my MRI scan since we started. And I think that's important for the patients because there's consistency from that standpoint. Some places that's not the case. However, if you had everyone that read it the same way, it was, it was something that was just part of reading radiology, uh, images, that would be a little bit more of a, of a thing that we could potentially think about from that standpoint. The other problem that we have with, with prostate cancer is the, the grading system and the differences in how we manage different Gleason scores. You know, a Gleason 6 prostate cancer in one or two cords is different than a Gleason 9 or 10 prostate cancer involving the whole prostate. So unless the MRI scan can give us some absolutes in that information, it'd be very difficult for us to avoid the biopsy because of the, the profound amount of information we gather from what the imaging tells us. So I think the technology has to be able to give us some grading information beyond, you know, PIRES 4 and 5, PIRES 3, 1 and 2, because right now PIRES 4 and 5 tell us that the risk of cancer that's Gleason 7 or higher is increased. But a PIRES 4 
we have a higher suspicion that it's going to be a cancer, but all of us have done biopsies where a pyrus 4 lesion sometimes is a 4 plus 3 equals 7, sometimes it's an 8, but it's not as exact as you see a Gleason score and you act on it from that standpoint. And, and I think once that gets better, once we can get more information that we can act upon, I think then we can potentially go to treatment straight off the MRI scan without the biopsy, because what we do in the spectrum of treatment is a bit different right now. That may change. So more to come. Anything else you want to add? I mean, I think it was great. Exosome DX, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exosome DX. I mean, I think it's an easy test. You know, I think with the biomarker with Exosome DX, it's a urine-based test, easy to use. And it's an in-between test that let you know, for the lack of a better word, it lets your PSA be smarter, and it also lets your MRI scan be smarter. And it's something to talk to your urologist about. If your urologist is a tool that you can use very easily, you can even order it to be sent to your patient's home so that it uses very smart technology to see if your patient's PSA is due to a prostate cancer that's a Gleason 7 or higher. Essentially, the thing that we've been talking this hour which biopsies can you avoid and which ones should you not avoid? And it can complement the other things. If you're someone who likes to have MRI scan as part of your algorithm, which I do, this is a beautiful complement to it. If you are trying to have a patient that doesn't want to do a biopsy, see that they may or may not need it. This helps us make that decision. And if it's something where you're following a patient who has erratic PSAs that are going up and down, it helps in that. So there's so many different scenarios that you can use it and it's something that's covered, and it's something that's easy for patients to do. Well, thanks again, Ali, Dr. Caps Ryan, to be part of Back Table. No, I thank you, and I really appreciate it. I look forward to, uh, to hearing more on your wonderful, wonderful podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.